Hey guys, it's Friend and More, and with there being two pretty high profile um, cases on defamation, the so called Wagatha Christie saga and the uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard suit, I thought it would be a good idea to give a quick run through of defamation. Uh, this one isn't particularly in depth, it's just an overview of some of the key parts of it. And also a discussion of the fact that the UK actually has a pretty poor reputation when it comes to defamation. So I thought the first thing to discuss would be what's the difference between libel and slander. Uh, almost everyone I think would say libel is a defamatory statement which is written down and slander is a defamatory statement that's uh, spoken, but that part's not actually as accurate as you'd think it is. It's an, an acceptable rule of thumb, but it's not actually the definition. Libel is defamation in a permanent format, and slander is defamation in a transitory format. So if it's written down, it's more likely to be liable than slander, but that's just because it's not actually written down doesn't mean it's not liable and it's slander. So for instance, a gesture is neither written down nor is it a spoken word, but it can be defamatory, as can, and there is a case on this, paintings, pictures, uh, waxworks at one point, that was, a, that was to do with Madame Tussauds, House of Horrors, I think, the case I'm thinking of, whose name escapes me at the moment. All of these are perfectly capable of being defamatory, but they're neither written down nor are they spoken word, which is why the definition has to be either permanent or transitory. But the difference is mostly academic now. It's not that important to tell the difference. It used to be, and I'll get on to why uh, soon enough. Something that some of you might be interested in, under section 166 of the Broadcasting Act 1990, and section 4 of the Theatres Act 1968, statements both within a performance of a play or in any programme included in the programme service can be considered publication in permanent form. So in that example, for instance, a statement given within a performance of a play is treated as publication in a permanent form, even if it's spoken word. So regarding why the uh, difference used to be important, until 2013, I think it was, Libel was actionable per se, which meant that if you proved you'd been li if you could prove that you had been libelled, you had a cause of action. In order to sue for slander, you had to prove that you'd suffered some special damage, or that it fell within one of the exceptional cases which were considered actionable per se. For instance, uh, accusing someone of having committed a crime even when it's slander was actionable per se, as was accusing a woman of being uh, unchaste, I think, 
that one was actually a very interesting uh that one caused a very interesting uh case shall I say because someone was once accused of being a lesbian and there was a very large argument about whether accusing a woman of being a lesbian since obviously gay marriage was not legal at the time and therefore all uh, sex had to be outside marriage was accusing her of being unchaste and therefore actionable per se. There's some very interesting cases when it comes to defamation and I really would love to do a much more in-depth discussion of it but I can't right now sadly. So, what's the burden of proof for defamation? Well, a claimant has to show a defendant made the statement they're complaining about and that the statement was something defamatory and that it caused or was likely to cause serious harm to the defendant's reputation. So, a statement is defamatory if it would cause ordinary, reasonable, right-thinking members of society to think less of a person. So, defamation is protection of a reputation. So if you accuse someone of doing something that's not going to harm their reputation, then it's not defamatory, even if you don't actually like what they've said. That's caused some degree of problems where a person is a member of a community which frowns upon activities that the remainder of society would not frown upon. So for instance, if a person is a very devout the religious person and is accused of having violated a religious tenet, that might be defamatory in their eyes, but it might not be deemed defamatory because it wouldn't, the average person who, who probably wouldn't be a member of that religious group might not view it as being something to be ashamed of or something that would harm their reputation. On the other hand, some cases have got around that by saying that by saying they were a devoutly religious person who doesn't actually follow the teachings of that religion. They're accusing them of being a hypocrite and society does of course frown upon hypocrisy. So there have been cases where lawyers have worked their way around what appeared to be a impassable wall. So once that's been shown it's important to note this because this is actually rather unusual in defamation cases, but it is England and Wales's law. A statement is presumed to be false until shown otherwise. So as a result, strictly speaking, a statement is treated by the judge as it would be now, as if it was false straight away. So the claimant doesn't actually ever need to prove that the statement is false. But the defendant can, if he wishes, raise as a defence that it is true. Because something which is true cannot be defamatory. Because it's true and it's accurate. The point of defamation is it protects a person's reputation against unjustifiable lies or harm against people being malicious with them. But that has caused quite a lot of problems because by instantly presuming that it's false, it essentially shifts 
the onus onto the defendant to show that it isn't false or else the presumption the judge will have to work from is that the defendant is lying or making up their story. It is however important to note that where the case is something of public interest or relates to an aspect of journalism there's going to be a lot more complexity and judges will sometimes require a claimant to prove uh, allegations or disprove allegations which in a normal case wouldn't be necessary. So to summarise, the burden of proof doesn't necessarily lie on either the claimant or defendant but the claimant does need to establish that there has been a defamatory act or else there is no case whatsoever. And now we move on to libel tourism which is a problem that the UK has, especially England and Wales, has had for quite a while. English defamation law has traditionally been more lenient on a claimant than most other jurisdictions. The US especially has uh, been critical of English defamation law and defences are a lot more restricted in English law than they are in, for instance, American law. There has therefore been a lot of accusations that foreign claimants exploit English defamation law to bring cases that other countries would have rejected outright. So for instance, uh, Khalid bin Mahfouz, who is an Irish Saudi Arabian billionaire, brought a case against Rachel Ehrenfeld in 2003. Uh, Ehrenfeld is an American, by the way, because in her book, she had accused him of providing funding to Islamist groups now the book was not sold in British bookstores but 23 copies had been sold in the UK and Khalid brought his suit not in America where Ehrenfeld was from nor in Ireland where he was a citizen nor in Saudi Arabia where he was from he brought it in England a place where 23 copies had been sold I think it's fair to say it was a very tenuous link there was a link, but it was a very tenuous one. And it was as a result of cases such as this that the Defamation Act 2013 added a requirement that the defendant is not a resident of Europe, as Ehrenfeld was or not. The claimant has to show the judge why the English court is the most appropriate forum for the case. So he might have been able to do so and show that uh, the High Court in London is the most appropriate case. Uh, court to hear the case should I say but I think there's a lot of doubt that that would still apply he probably wouldn't have been able to bring that suit post defamation act uh, one thing to note is that the changes made in the 2013 act were not adopted in Northern Ireland which is why there is a fear that London is going to be usurped as the choice destination for libel tourism but the new destination is going to be Belfast so it's going to still be a UK problem but what defences are there to a claim if brought within England and Wales well the most obvious one truth if the statement is factual and a veracity of facts as such 
that statement is substantially true when the claim will fail. The entire point is that a defamatory statement shouldn't be true because to tell the truth about a person doesn't defame them, it doesn't harm their reputation, it doesn't, uh, it sort of corrects the reputation, I suppose you could say. The defamation is supposed to protect against untrue or unfounded allegations. It's not to protect a person against the consequences of their own action. Another defence is honest opinion. So it is a defence to show that the statement the claimant is complaining of was a statement of opinion made by the defendant that was founded upon some factual circumstances that an honest person could have held when a statement was actually published. But it's important to note the defendant will not succeed with the defence of honest opinion if they don't actually hold that opinion or if they've not given a statement of opinion if they give a factual statement and that fact is untrue so it doesn't uh, benefit from the defense of truth you can subsequently protect it by arguing it's an opinion that's not how it's allowed to proceed if you give a statement of fact then you have to raise truth if you're giving an opinion then you have to give honest opinion as your defense and then obviously the public interest defense very catch-all it is a defense of a statement is a matter of public interest and the publication was reasonably believed to be in the public interest journalists are going to plead this all the time as you'd expect it doesn't always work well uh, public interest actually rather covers what used to be referred to as qualified privilege uh, so if you ever see previous case law and it mentions qualified privilege it would probably now fall under what's now the defense of public interest but you've also got absolute privilege so certain statements can never be the basis of a defamation suit in fact they can't be the basis of any civil case whatsoever examples are a statement made in court under oath or a statement which is made in parliament because clause 9 of the bill of rights 1689 dictates that parliamentary business is justiciable by Parliament and Parliament alone. The courts cannot interfere with Parliament's business. So, for instance, uh, I've forgotten which, what her name is, but there was a Liberal Democrat MP who accused some lawyers of enabling Russian oligarchs, and she said that in Parliament uh, in a debate, which meant that. She was absolutely privileged. She could say whatever she wanted about the person she was arguing with oligarchs. I mean, calling a person an oligarch is probably defamatory. But because she said it in Parliament, it was an absolutely privileged statement. And the lawyer she was accusing of enabling them, again, that could be seen as defamatory. But because she said it in Parliament, none of the lawyers, none of the accused oligarchs, none of them can do anything about it. Uh, another uh, thing which you, you should bear in mind is all parliamentary business benefits from this absolute privilege. So a witness who gives evidence to a parliamentary select committee whose evidence is accepted by other committee is absolutely privileged in what they say in that evidence. There's also the defence of innocent dissemination which is uh, 
mostly to do with internet service providers, which is the terminology used by uh, the Defamation Act of 2013. The general rule is that anyone who is involved in disseminating a defamatory statement is liable to have, is liable as having been a publisher of it. But if the action is against a website operator on a statement posted on the website, it will be defence for that website operator to show that they did not themselves post that statement on the website. So, for instance, if you were to sue uh, Twitter, they're a website operator, it would be defence for them to show that although there was a defamatory statement posted on Twitter, it was not Twitter themselves who posted it. But the defence won't succeed if it's not possible for the claimant to identify the person who actually posted a statement, or the claimant had given the operator a notice of complaint against it, and the operator failed to respond to that notice within the regulations. A peer-reviewed statement in a scientific or academic journal is also protected under the Defamation Act. A statement which is made in such a journal, whether electronic or uh, any other format, is privileged if a statement relates to a scientific or academic matter, and prior to being published, an independent review of the statement's merit was carried out by the editor and persons with expertise in the matter concerned. Where a statement is privileged, any assessment, extract or summary of the statement's merit is also privileged. But a publication is not privileged if it is shown to be made with malice. And the defence is not a protection for publications which are criminally prohibited. It is a civil protection, it is a civil, not a criminal defence. There is also not so much a defence, although it can be argued to be one limitation. The cause of action for a defamation uh, case expires after one year, which is stated in section 4AA of the Limitation Act 1980. If a case is brought after the cause of action has expired, then it is an absolute defence for the defendant that it's barred by time. And finally, you have the death of the claimant. Defamation protects the reputation of the living, not the dead. Under Section 1, Subsection 1 of the Law Reform Miscellaneous Provisions Act 1954, the cause of action does not survive the death of the claimant for the benefit of their estate. And you can't therefore uh, bring a case on behalf of a dead person, nor can a dead person's case proceed after their death if they've already started it. But can a company sue for defamation? Well, a company has legal personality, so yes, it can be defamed, and yes, it can sue for defamation. But if a non-natural person, such as a company, or a limited liability partnership, wanted to bring a case for defamation, then court permission is required, as stated in the 2013 Defamation Act. And that act actually says that the application for permission to bring the case should be struck out unless the body corporate can show the publication or matters complained of has either caused or is likely to cause substantial financial loss to the claimant. That might seem possible, but it's a lot harder than you would think. Because even if they show, 
even if a public company was able to show, for instance, that their sh uh, share price had fallen significantly, that's not necessarily going to convince a judge that it has caused substantial financial loss to them, because they'd need to prove that the drop in share price was caused by the defamatory statement if it fell for other reasons or partially because of a statement but not significantly only in part that's not going to be enough and the application would be struck out but non-natural persons who are performing a public function are not allowed to bring a suit in defamation against any statement which is relating to that function So what damages can be expected in a defamation case? Well, actually one of the reasons the 2013 Act removed a presumption of trial by jury, which was previously expected, which is why, for instance, if you look at the Wagapa Christie case, there isn't a jury. But if you look at the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case, there is a jury, I believe. Uh, so the difference between England and America on this is that uh, England has abolished the presumption of trial by jury. You can ask for a trial by jury and people have done so. I think Lawrence Fox recently tr uh, made an application for a trial by jury for defamation. But it was abolished because of damages. Juries were often renowned for awarding an unbelievably large amount of damages if they found there had been defamation. So in Aldington and Tolstoy, which was, uh, it was a case about an accusation of conduct, and essentially, um, I'm trying to think of how to euphemistically say this, conduct during the 1940s, shall we say. Uh, the award was £1.5 million plus 500,000 costs. And that bankrupted Tolstoy, who had made the accusation. And he actually brought the case further to the European Court of Human Rights, who held that the award was so excessive that he actually breached his right to freedom of expression under the convention. So that's the technical maximum, I suppose, because, I mean, that award was excessive compared to the actual damage. I mean, his reputation was damaged, but 1.5 million pounds of damage was deemed unbelievably high. So what's the lowest? Well, traditionally the lowest possible award uh, was the lowest coin in circulation. This would be referred to as contemptuous damages. Currently that would be 1p, because uh, there's a 1p coin and there's no uh, coin lower than that. Before uh, UK currency was decimalised in 1971, this would have been a farthing, which was worth roughly about a quarter of a penny, or one nine hundred and of a pound. Uh, thankfully, I've never had to deal with decimalised currency, but if you go that far back, and uh, it says that the claimant is awarded a farthing, it's fair to say that they've been awarded contemptuous damages. But the lowest amount that judges currently appear willing to actually award is £1. Uh, some examples of people who have been awarded 
one pound in damages, and Meghan Markle in a suit against the Daily Mail, and Bruce Grobelar in a case against The Sun. And a final concern would be, what happens if a defamatory statement is made and a case is brought and compensation awarded, but the accusation is later shown to be accurate? Well, any compensation paid can be recovered by a defendant as unjustified settlement funds so they can sue to get their money back. And they may also counterclaim for fraud since um, the, the claimant will have made a financial gain based on a deceit, you know, they were proclaiming that the accusation was false when in fact it was true or accurate. So they might be able, they would be able to sue to get all their money back and also sue for fraud, which is completely separate and additional to. So as an example, this happened to Lance Armstrong. He'd sued the Sunday Times for publishing claims that he used performance enhancing drugs during his cycling career, and uh, the Sunday Times settled out of court with him. But the USADA, who deal with doping allegations, in 2012 produced a report which essentially said that Lance Armstrong absolutely had been doping, and in 2013 he didn't fully admit to it, but he did say that he had taken performance enhancing drugs during his career, which would have been enough for the Sunday Times uh, to have won the defamation case if it had been brought to trial. The Sunday Times said they were they did intend to sue him for the funds back and potentially counterclaim for fraud. But uh, that that was also settled out of court as well. I don't so I don't know what whether it was all his money back plus interest or plus extra. Uh, that's, I think, all you'd need for an overview of the case. Uh, and everything you need to know about defamation. I've been friend-in-law. I hope this has been helpful. Please like, share and subscribe. Thanks, guys.